Our scripture that was previously read came from John, the 20th chapter, and the 19th through the 25th verse. But for context, indulge me and allow me to read it once again. Because there are some truths here that I want to really bring your attention to. John, the 20th chapter, and the 19th through the 25th verse, which reads as thus. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now let's turn to Luke, the 24th chapter, and the 36th through the 40th verses. It reads, While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were all startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. A four-year-old girl was convinced that around her in the darkness of her room were all kinds of spooks and monsters. Alone, she ran into her parents' bedroom. Her, her, her mother, while calming her down, took her by the hand and led her back to her own room where she put on the light and reassured her little girl with these words, you needn't be afraid. You are not alone here. God is in the room with you. The child replied, I know that God is here, but I need someone in the room who has some skin. Whenever we are faced with some of life's most crippling challenges, fears and uncertainties, the comfort that comes from knowing that there are people who will stand with us cannot ever be overstated. No one likes feeling alone, especially in times of great fear. And it is at those times that we need to know that whoever is there with us, they are there because they too have a vested interest in our safety and survival. 
There is something reassuring about having the tangible presence of someone with us in times of difficulty. And just like that little girl and even the disciples, it is at those most crucial times that we need to know that there is someone with us that have what I have chosen to title today's message, Skin in the Game. Skin in the Game. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you, O Lord, for your presence today. We thank you, O Lord, that you are in the room, that despite the spooks and the monsters that may occupy our minds, that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, that you are ever with us, your spirit and your tangible presence. And for that, we thank you. Now speak to your people, Lord, that they may feel the sense of that comfort that only comes with the Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Skin in the game. The term skin in the game is a term credited to billionaire Warren Buffett, and it literally means to be at risk financially because you have invested your own money in something that you want to see happen. More simply, it is taken to mean putting your money where your mouth is or put up or shut up. Personally, I liken the term to the world of sports where we have many people on the sidelines who know everything that the players on the field should or should not be doing. Yet you wonder, why are they on the sidelines and not in the game? If you know so much about what the people who are playing the game are doing, then perhaps you should put on a jersey and get out on the soccer field and, or the football field and get knocked around and bruised around like everyone else who are playing. In other words, stop talking and get some of your own skin in the game. So essentially, the term means putting your own self at risk if you believe in the cause for which you are competing. Man has always craved a God who is tangible and visible. In the book of Job, the 23rd chapter, and the 8th through the 9th verse, we find Job lamenting over the fact that although he sought for God, he could not see God. Here it reads, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. I cannot Behold him. Similarly, Philip shared the same longing when he asked in John, the 14th chapter, in the 8th verse, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Every one of us craves to be in the presence of a God who is tangible, that we can see and feel and touch. If I can see you, if I can touch you, then I know that you are real and you are here with me. The physical evidence is proof that you are here, and it attests to the fact that what you are saying is in fact true. If I can touch it, if I can see it, if I can feel it, then I can believe it that you are here. Many communities, and in particular the African-American community, understand this idea all too well. 
Many homes are bereft of fathers who for one reason or another are absent from the lives of their children. The reasons for this are numerous and this sermon and the goal of this sermon is not to try to explicate the nuances of this malady but suffice it to say that irrespective of the reasons, all of the reasons there might be, there are many children that are suffering from the absence of a father that says he loves them yet he is not physically there with them. On the other hand, there are occasions where there is a father who's physically in the home Yet his presence, and I said presence, not person, is tangibly absent from the life of that home. Perhaps the common preoccupation with the television or work or some other activity has removed the priority of fatherhood and relegated that most important role to one of convenience. Either way, my point is simply that far too often and in too many instances, we have fathers who talk a good game, but in reality have no skin in the game. Not to be outdone, we also have the challenge with mothers that act more like girlfriends to their children, and in particular, their daughters, without recognizing that their children are not their Friends, nowhere in the Bible does it instruct a mother to use her emotional treasury to appease and enable a child simply because you have a problem with feeling unloved. There is a baggage that you carry, for not from one or two, but several failed relationships that you try to win the love that you missed by manipulating your children with guilt because they remind you so much of their Father, my brothers and my sisters, better yet, you try to purchase their love with sneakers and stuff that you can ill afford. Ladies, I am sorry, but I have to tell you, it will never work. The Bible says in the Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, that when he is old, he will not depart from it. But how can you train up a child in the way that they should go when you have no idea where you yourself are going, let alone to train a child. If you are even fortunate to have the father working with you to raise the child, then you need to recognize that it's not a one-woman show, that you are not the only one that is equipped with the ability to train the child. What we need are mothers who understand what being a mother is really all about, humbling yourselves before a holy God that can help you even if the father is absent. We need mothers with some skin in the game. Then there is you. You're not a father or a mother, but you live in a world where you feel like you have underachieved. You look around and you find that you're not getting any younger, and most of your friends are either married or settled, or they have great careers, while you wonder, where did I make a wrong turn? Or maybe you've had some good success in your life, but you're not getting the respect you believe that you have earned. You think that your heart is good and that you care about the things that other people should care about, yet something seems to be missing from your life. The truth is, you probably only do things that are in your best interest, and anything that you choose to do comes from a place of what's in it for me, you really have a limited sense of self-sacrifice. And the only way that you're going to get out of that lonely place is to really step outside of your comfort zone and do the very things that you know you need to do but can't seem to get past your own selfish 
attitude, and ambitions. In short, you need to have some skin in the game. All of these cases and examples that I've expressed may or may not be your story. But what everyone can relate to is the fact that we all have some personal fears that hinder us from being able to live out our true potential. There are things that we need to do and need to accomplish, but our fears can be so crippling that we feel like we're the only ones going through these problems. We feel lonely and we wish we had someone who was with us, who really understood our problem. In other words, we walk around with these fears hoping, wishing, praying that we had someone with us who understood us, who also had some skin in our game. Let's look at our text, beginning at verse 19, where it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Notice that it says it was evening on that day. This means there was darkness. And the reference to the dark is always in the text of scripture to give us a sense that there's an absence of light. But the light is coming. But the text also tells us that the disciples were in a room locked away. And that they were there because they were in fear of the Jews. Jesus was crucified for what he believed. And the cultural mindset that day is that if you are associated with anyone that has been deemed a criminal, then what happened to Jesus could easily happen to you. In other words, they could be accused of being guilty by association and they were fearful of getting their skin in the game. Like the disciples, when you and I are faced with our most challenging fears, the tendency is always to hide and lock ourselves away. And every time we shut the doors of our life, our mind, or our hearts, we imprison ourselves in our own hiding place, whatever your hiding place might be. This hiding place is always a psychologically inspired place, which we call escapism. And in its most basic form, it is an intentional detachment and distraction from the reality of our lives. This detachment allows a momentary reprieve from our circumstances, giving us sometimes a chance to recoup before getting back into the fray. Now, the little girl that I mentioned at the beginning of this message was very convinced that her room was filled with spooks and monsters. The, the, the monsters and spooks in our lives, whether real or imagined, would have us believe that they are more powerful than our God. While, while some of them may be imagined to be creatures that, that are big and hairy and scary and with horns under our beds just waiting to eat us, some of these monsters and spooks look a lot like debt collectors or the potential of lost employment or not passing a driver's test, a breakup from a meaningful relationship, failing an important exam, a child not getting into college. I mean, I could name any number of things and when whether or not they are hairy or scary doesn't change the fact that they work the very same way that the spooks and monsters work 
in that little girl's room. You name whatever your monsters or spooks may be. And all of these, while they may not, as I say, be scary, they can engulf us emotionally with crippling fears that force us to run to our parents' room or, like the disciples, to lock ourselves away. It is here in this place that Jesus presents himself. But look at what Jesus does when he comes into your fearful and frightened place. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When you face your most daunting fears, and in the darkness of your lives, Jesus comes in. Even though the door of your soul is locked shut and you have chosen not to let anyone into your psychological area of immense pain and fear, Jesus appears. But there is, but, but church, there is, mm -mm. there is no door to your heart no place of your hiding that is beyond Jesus' ability to penetrate and to come in. It is why the psalmist says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So, so, so my brothers and my sisters, what's my point? When you are in that dark place, whatever your dark place might be, where you choose to isolate yourself and to lock yourself away, Jesus comes in. And right there in the midst of your pain, as the text tells us, he says the only words that you need to hear, which is, peace be with you. Jesus, like only he can, only he can, utters words that take the spook out of spooky, the ear out of fear so that you no longer listen to it and the ape or the big hairy monster the ape out of escape when Jesus comes in he meets you where you are he will come in the midst of your issue and he will bring you his peace but beloved beloved that's wonderful enough but after he does this, he then gives you the ultimate proof that the peace that he brings to you is not just lip service or some nice cliche. He shows you that he is literally with you because he has his own skin in the game. The text says, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Jesus says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. The peace that Jesus brings is his enduring and everlasting 
presence in your life, no matter how much you might lock yourself away. You mean that much to him, and there is no place that you could go where he, Jesus, will not find you. He loves you so much that he would put his own skin in the game for you. And if this were all that Jesus did, it would be enough. But he goes a step further. This is what I love about the scriptures. Jesus doesn't just do a work. Jesus completes the work, right? Again, if we return to the text, verse 21, here's what it says. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Watch this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Not only did Jesus bring them peace and showed them that he had some skin in the game, but he breathed on them and gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a Pentecostal activity, yet we are told that none of them spoke in tongues. So my question is, why did Jesus give them the Holy Spirit? Wasn't his presence enough? Why did Jesus give them the Holy Spirit? For you and I know that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So if his presence was enough, why then give them this Holy Spirit power to be witnesses? What was Jesus giving them, giving them this power to be witnesses to? And I am glad you asked. Look with me at what Jesus says after they received the Holy Spirit, beginning at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Here it is. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This is what Jesus says to the disciples. Now, in our culture, we often hear about God's unconditional love. God loves everybody, right? But this idea is often misunderstood. Stay with me, church. The Lord does love sinners in the sense that there is nothing inside of us that we can say inherently is good enough that God would love us. There's nothing inside us that really warrants God's love. I want you to understand what I'm saying. This, this is often misunderstood. Jesus is saying, listen, God's love is unconditional, but there is nothing inside us that is inherently good that would warrant God's unconditional love. He loves sinners, and there is no, 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 no form of contradiction there. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, stay with me, church, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God loved us to such an extent that he sent Jesus Christ to die for us even while we were still cruddy. 
The perfect God took on human flesh and purchased for us what we could not even earn for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, God himself put his own skin in the game. So your goodness or your badness is inconsequential to the gift of Christ dying for you. That is the part that is unconditional. No matter how good or bad you are, Christ still died for you. You had nothing to put there. You had nothing to earn. Christ died for you. But, 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 but while God's unconditional love was demonstrated in Christ's death, you still must confess your sin and ask God for mercy, and he will give it to you unconditionally, irrespective of who you are or what you have done. There is no, 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 no litmus test for you to get God's love. That's what Jesus Christ bought with his precious blood. But there is a part that depends on you. There is a part that depends on you. And this is the condition of repentance. Hear me, church. You cannot earn the pardon, but you must ask for it. You are not guaranteed to receive it, but you must ask for it. You cannot be rejected, but you must ask for it. Failure to ask for it means that you are subject to God's perfect justice which again as the apostle paul reminds us for all have sinned and fallen short of his glory and that the wages of sin is death those who approach the lord this way automatically receives his perfect forgiveness thus having received this unconditional forgiveness we now recognize that if god the perfect Holy One shows mercy and forgiveness to we who are unworthy, then we too are obligated to do the very same thing for other people. If we do not forgive those who ask for our forgiveness, then we demonstrate that we don't really understand what it took or what it cost for God to forgive us and if we have not seen our own need for forgiveness then my brothers and my sisters we don't understand the Lord's mercy so is the fact that you have been forgiven obvious in your life when you walk down the street or you live your daily life do you demonstrate the lifestyle of someone who has been forgiven for if not, you are a faulty witness. <laughs> you see, you hear what I just said? If you don't demonstrate the forgiveness to others that you have been received, then what that you have received, then you have become a faulty witness. Forgiveness of sins is one of the major benefits of the death of Jesus Christ. When he hung on that cross, what did he say to those who were stoning him, those who were piercing him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the moment of Christ's greatest weakness, when the people themselves who were hurling insults at him, he asked the Father to forgive them. So you as a Christian, walking around saying that you're a witness 
for Christ, yet holding unforgiveness of others, I'm telling you, you are a poor witness at best. Proclaiming the forgiveness of sins was the prominent, prominent feature of the apostles. When Rome and everyone else was condemning, the apostles were forgiving. When the, when the world and everyone is going around harming and hurting black folks and Asian folks, guess what? The church was the one forgiving. You see, you see, you see if a person rejects Jesus' sacrifice, then a Christian cannot pronounce God's forgiveness on that person. I'm telling you, if someone says, I got saved, then the Christian and the believer can say, your sins are forgiven. That's the authority and the power that God gives to us. And that's why the true measure, the true measure of our Christian faith and our walk is a demonstration of our love for others, just as we understand God loved us. You are forgiven the moment you accept Jesus Christ into your life. Forgiveness is, is a reference to the Holy Spirit's work within people. The Holy Spirit is the one who forgives and he uses us as believers to deliver his word and his message carrying out God's perfect will. This fits in with the Spirit's role as an advocate for the sinners. The true measure of you having received the Holy Spirit is not necessarily to preach, to save souls on the corner of the street, to build a big church, but to forgive. This is the greatest power that the believer has in his arsenal. And the only way you can do this is if you first understand that you have received forgiveness yourself. So now back to our little girl. While calming her down, she was taken by the hand by her mother where she put on a light and reassured her with these words. You needn't be afraid, dear. You are not alone here. God is in the room with you. The child replied, I know that God is here, but I need someone in the room who has some skin. The revelation of Jesus' wounds to his disciples, when he said, come and touch and feel and see, the revelation of Jesus' wounds to his disciples was letting them realize that he was in fact their crucified Lord. He, he, that he was the one that was on that cross that stood now before them. He was with them no matter what they would face. He was letting them know that he had skin in the game. Likewise, for you, locked away in your psychological and emotional place of fear, grief, anger, resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness, self-serving, self-seeking, self-indulgence, whatever your locked-away place might be, all you need to do is crack open that door just a little bit. Just unlock it for just a little bit in faith and let a little bit of the light of the Christ come in. And let the Holy Spirit breathe on you even through the crack in your door. Breathe a breath of life, a life of forgiveness and freedom for you. And you would be surprised how the light of God's grace will fill no matter how dark the room might feel. No matter how many monsters or spooks are under your bed. Brothers and sisters, that's what Christ offers today. Forgiveness for you. So that he can then breathe on you 
that you will have the capacity to forgive others. And that is why you need the power of the Holy Spirit. Won't you make that choice today to allow Jesus the Christ to put his skin into your game that you can hear those wonderful words, peace be with you in Jesus' name. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.